John 16, starting with verse 29, the Bible says, His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour come, excuse me, cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of being your house. Father, I pray that you'd watch over us, take care of us. I pray, dear God, that you would give us clarity of thought and mind, and help us, dear Lord, anoint us from on high to preach your word. Father, we pray the hindrance of the devil, Lord God, and pray the free will of the Spirit of God, that you'd move in every heart tonight, Lord, and we'll thank you for all that's done, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we look here, uh, looking at ending out John 16 there, we are getting to that, uh, the, the very pinnacle. Jesus is just about to be uh, crucified there. He is just about to be arrested. Uh, we know that there will be a, a mockery of a trial that will come after that. And as he's coming there again, he has left the upper room with his disciples. They're on that way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is talking with them. Uh, he explained to them, as we looked at last week, he said, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. He said, Up to this point, you've not really prayed for anything and he was encouraging them to pray. He said the Spirit would come and would help them to pray with those things and now as he begins to talk there he's telling him uh, that he is going to be crucified, that he came uh, from the Father and that he's come into this world and again I leave this world and go to the Father. He's telling him he's getting ready to leave and the disciples they hear this thing and they say okay now we understand. Now we get it. I want you to notice as we look in verses 29 through 33, we see Jesus gives a precaution to those disciples. Now in verse number 29 and 30, we see a sure response there. This is the profession of the disciples there. In verse 29, they talk about that clarity. His disciples said unto him, Lo, speakest thou, uh, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. They said, We get it, we understand. We know exactly what you're talking about. Only problem is, they had no clue. They go on to talk about it. They say, now we, we completely understand. And you say, preacher, how do you know that they didn't have any clue? Because of what happened after Christ was crucified. Remember, he told them over and over again throughout his earthly ministry, the Son of Man must be crucified. He'd spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and that he would rise again victorious. And they should have understood that. But we see by their reaction that they did not. We see we understand completely. Uh, they had come to the place there as we'll get to it. As we look in uh, uh, future messages and a couple chapters up there where uh, Peter comes and after Christ had been crucified, he'd been uh, buried there. They knew that they were under persecution. They were hiding out for fear uh, that the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were going to say, hey, this group was with him and they were going to suffer the same fate as Christ had suffered and they were hiding out for that. And Peter comes to the conclusion, we know Peter, he, he meant well, but boy, he got ahead of God a lot of the time. And he comes to the conclusion, he says, I go fishing. He was not saying, I'm taking a day of vacation or I'm going out relaxing. What he was saying is, I'm going back to my old lifestyle. 
What he's saying is, I'm going back to the old way of life that I knew because the Messiah is dead. He's gone. They're the one we thought to be the Christ, the one we were sure was the, the, the promised coming uh, Savior. He's gone now, and, and we have no hope. We don't know what's going to happen. And here he is. He said, I'm going back to the old way of life there. Friends, that shows that they did not pay attention. It also shows that apart from the Holy Spirit of God, we don't have any power within ourselves. He was warning them and He was teaching them a lesson about self-sufficiency. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 12 says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. Friends, He was warning them there. He was trying to get across to them the point that they did not fully understand. Self-confidence is often the forerunner to disaster. When it comes to Christ, there is a reason in John 15 He said over and over again, Except ye abide in me, ye can do nothing. We have, we have to remember, we have this depraved human nature. That word depraved means that we don't even have a desire within ourselves to please God. If you don't believe that, look at the lost today. If you look at a lost person today, a lost person's desire is simply on themselves. You look at the motto of business today, it is step on whoever you have to to get ahead. Make sure you get yours first. Don't worry about anybody else. If you look at what sells in the church today, if you look at televangelists and the message that they sell uh, today, that, uh, that hireling that stands up there and has a product for sale, if you look at what they're selling, they're saying, uh, what they're saying is get ahead. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be uh, healthy and prosperous and all that. And if you're not, you're outside of God's will. If you're not those things, uh, then obviously something is wrong there. That's the depravity of man. That's how we can see man's natural state that is depraved there. And anytime we go apart from the Holy Spirit of God, anytime we, re- uh, we resist that Holy Spirit or we grieve that Holy Spirit or we quench that Holy Spirit, what we are doing is going back to that depraved nature, going back to that self-sufficiency, and it won't be long till disaster follows. It is a dangerous, dangerous road for us to ever try and get ahead of God and do things on our own. I love looking at these disciples, not looking at their failures, because every one of us, friends, we ought not to want to see any other Christian fail. We ought never to want to see another Christian fall. Uh, We ought never to sit back and rejoice. That's why it says, take heed. I love where it says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to edify each other. We're to encourage each other. But we have to remember, we have to be so very careful when it comes to stepping out in any sense of pride or self-sufficiency or self-dependency. We can't live this Christian life on our own. And what we need to realize, I tell you, there are some today and I don't understand the mindset behind it. But they stand up there and boldly proclaim how the devil has no power over them. How they uh, would take on hell with a water pistol. Boy, that sounds good. But you better be careful saying something like that. You better be very careful because the only victory we have is when we're submitted to Christ. The Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The word resist does mean to fight. Yes, we are to fight against the devil. But that first part, comes, it comes before we fight. Submit yourselves therefore unto God. They had spoken. They said, oh, now you speak clearly. Now we get it. Uh, we understand there's no reason uh, for you to teach anymore. They talked about that clarity uh, in verse number 29. They talked about the coming in verse number 30. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things. And needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. We're sure you're the one. We know you're the one. 
There is no doubt in my mind. That's the same self-assurance and the same arrogant attitude that Peter had in just a little while when he says, if everyone else departs from you, I'm willing to die with you. That's what happens, again, with that, that pride with us doing it ourselves. Pride always, always goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18 warns us of that. I think about the disciples there. They spoke with great surety and they, uh, they said, listen, we know. We know there's no doubt in our mind. But it was only skin deep. I think about the example. There was a, a man that was, was walking. He was a, a skilled. He, he was one of those uh, people that walked across the tightrope. I don't know what you call them, but they're... they're um, you know, they're skilled in walking across that. No doubt it's got to be a very difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of practice. And he's standing up there and he's displaying his talent in front of everybody. He's walking across that tightrope. He's performing tricks as he goes across it. He shows himself to be extremely capable and very good at what he's doing. Uh, shows himself walking over a, a large tightrope that's stretched out over a body of water and over a high area. And all these things that are death-defying and dangerous. Wows the crowd. And they're sitting around there and he says, which one of you? He said, who here believes that I could take a wheelbarrow and walk a man across this tightrope without him falling? And many hands went up. They said, oh, we believe it. He said, now which one of you are willing to get in the wheelbarrow? All those hands went down. Friends, I say, we talk about faith and we talk about ability and being able to do things by ourselves. But until we're put in that place and until we're willing to step up and to really do those things, faith without action is dead. That's what the book of James tells us. Faith without works is dead. He said, you show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So the disciples, they had faith in themselves when they should have had faith in Christ. What, he, what they were saying is what they didn't even realize is they were setting themselves up for failure. Friends, you and I, I don't care how long you've been saved. I don't care how much of the Bible you know. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, we have no power within ourselves. He is the source of power today. He is our strength today. He is the encourager. He is the one who enlightens us and directs us there. That's why the Bible tells us, uh, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I not, uh, might not sin against thee. You say, Preacher, what's that got to do with having the power of the Holy Spirit? Friends, understand something. Being uh, Having the power of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with some prayer or some speaking in tongues or some nonsense. It has to do with staying in the Word of God and the will of God. If you want to have the power of God, that's where you get it from. Amen. When your heart and your mind is centered on those things, it has nothing to do with uh, being able to call down fire from heaven. It has nothing to do uh, with sign gifts and the impressive. That Bible says God speaks in a still small voice. He speaks to us through His Word. That's why every one of us could be victorious. If it had to do with miracles, there would only be one or two that could claim that. They'd say, oh, we have more faith than everybody else. If it had to do, if Jesus, when he displayed that power there and how to defeat Satan there, would have called down fire, would have proved himself by uh, sovereign works there, then you and I wouldn't have that same ability. But the word, uh, the power there, Jesus said, uh, it is written over and over when Satan atta attacked him there and tempted him there. Jesus said, it is written. 
It was His Word that we read in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 there. What is the offensive weapon we have? He goes on to talk about the whole armor of God. The helmet of salvation. He talks about that breastplate of righteousness. The loins girt about with truth. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, the shield of faith there that is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. But He says there's one offensive weapon and that is the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Amen. There is nothing more powerful than the Word of God today. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians when Paul said, talking about the sign gifts, he says these things shall cease. Why? Because we have something better than the sign gifts. We have the finished Word of God today. When that Bible was complete, that Bible is more powerful than any sign gift ever could be, than any miracle ever could be, or the raising of the dead there. This Bible consistently takes someone that is dead in trespasses and sins and raises them up to new life there. It's our source of power today. Amen. Apart from that, we have no hope. Apart from the Gospel apart from the Word of God, and knowing that Word, having it hidden in our hearts, study. That's why the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth there. That's because it is our only chance to defeat the devil today. Is to stay in the Word of God and in the will of God there, close to the Son of God. That's why it is so very important there. He goes on to tell them, he said, you're setting yourself up. For failure. Now, Jesus is merciful and He is gracious. He goes on, yes, He corrects them, but I want you to notice how He does it. Not only do we see uh, the sure response in verses 29 and 30, they're the profession of the disciples, but we see the solemn question in verse number 31, the problem of the disciples. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? He asks a very simple question to them. What He was really saying is, Do you really believe? Are you sure? He knew their hearts. See, remember, you've heard me say it many times. Jesus not only knows what we do, but He knows the motives behind what we do. And He goes on to ask them, He said, do you, do you now believe? Do you really believe there? He goes on to ask them, and he, he begins to speak to them. What we see here is the deity of Christ, first of all. He knew their heart. We see here, when I say deity, it means godliness. It means godly attributes and ability there. The fact that He is God in the flesh. Uh, when He talks about that deity there, we look and we reference chapters. We look back at Matthew 26, uh, verse number 56 there, where Jesus is speaking. It says, But all this was done that the, scripture might, uh, excuse me, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. Jesus knew what was coming. In His sovereignty, in His deity, in the fact that He is God, He knew that in just a short period of time, every one of those disciples was going to flee and was going to leave Him. He knew He was going to be by Himself. Now, the profession that they're making, they say, we believe that you're the Christ. If they believed that He was truly the Messiah, they would have stood beside Him. If they believed He was truly the Messiah, they would have fought for Him. They would not have let Him be arrested. They would not have let Him uh, be taken there. But instead, they flee and they run to save themselves there. They scatter abroad there. And it shows again uh, that weakness of the flesh. But He talks about again, He talks about that deity there. He said, do ye really believe? Do ye really believe that I am the Christ? Friends, that is a question that every one of us ought to be able to answer today. Because just like those disciples, if you are going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a time in your life when the question is asked of you, do you really believe? Just as Job, in Job chapter number 1, verse number 9, I believe off the top of my head, 
Satan asked and said, Doeth Job fear God for naught? Means does he fear you for nothing? Does he fear you simply because it's been easy? Does he serve you simply because you have put a hedge about him and about his family? Or is his heart really true to you? Friends, anybody can serve God when things are easy. Anybody can do it when health is good and wealth is fine and all those things. Anybody can do that. That's not service. That's not surrender. That's not discipleship. Serving God comes with a cost many times. Anybody who has been a Christian any length of time, you know there have been trials that have come your way. You know there have been times when you felt you were treated unfair or someone talked about you or you went through some kind of hardship, whether it be health-wise or financially, or whatever the case may be, there was trials that have come your way. Those trials there prove your heart. They test you. They strengthen you. It's like tempering steel. When they, when they take steel in order to harden that steel and to make it to where it is stronger and able to bear more weight, they heat it up, they make it incredibly hot, and then they dip it and cool it in that water and it tempers that steel there, it hardens it so that it can handle more of a load. God works in our hearts so He tempers us there. He allows trials to come not to discourage us, not to dishearten us, but to develop us there, to build us, to uh, enrich us, to encourage us and strengthen us there. We've looked at uh, Genesis in Sunday school and the life of Abraham and all he went through there. That wasn't because God was picking on him. That's because God had a desire to use him. God was going to use these disciples but He had to teach them some things also. They had no idea about Pentecost and what would happen. They had no idea. Uh, Peter didn't know that he was going to take the, uh, the Gospel literally to the, uh, to the Jews and the Samaritans and, and Judeans and, and to the uttermost part of the earth. He had no idea about that, uh, but he had to be tempered before he could do those things. Jesus asking them that question showed them that He knew all about what was going to happen there. He talked about uh, the deity of Christ there. He talks also about the darkness of the cross there. What He is saying when He says, do you now believe? What He is recognizing is the fact that He is soon going to be alone. That is a fulfillment of prophecy. Over and over again, we can read Psalm 22 and verse number 1. Written about 1,100 years before Christ came to this earth there. The very first verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very thing that Christ cried on the cross when He hung there. Friends, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. He talked about that darkness of Calvary that was going to come there. Uh, he couldn't have known that. He couldn't have done that had He had not been God. But He's proving to them who they are. See, they didn't get it right away. They didn't understand it right then. But later on, they would think back on those things and they would remember what Christ says. Anybody here, your parents tell you something? And you say, no, that's not true. They don't know anything. I remember from about 13 to about 21, 22, my parents were dumb. <laughs> about 23, I had to call and apologize to them. They were smarter than I thought. But you remember, they tell you certain things during that time. They try and teach you some things. And you don't pay attention to it at that time. But as you get older and you look back, you, you, you remember when they taught you those things, when they told you those things, and it sinks in when you're a little bit older. That's the same thing that was happening with these disciples here. They didn't listen right then. They weren't paying attention. Their ears weren't open right then. But they would remember what Christ had said there, and it would further cement the fact that He is God to them. It would further cement, it would further give evidence to just who He was. Friends, God does that in our lives sometimes. 
Sometimes we're headstrong and we get ahead of God and we, uh, we're stubborn on things and we want to do things our way and God deals with our heart there and He's merciful to us and He's patient with us and we push Him away a little bit and then He has to knock us down and then, then we remember. Oh yeah, God, you told me about that. It would do us so much better for us to listen ahead of time. But sometimes it, it takes that, that extra that a little extra mile there to learn the lesson there. Christ was teaching them. Now, I, I love this. Because Jesus does not... He knows what's going to happen. He knows they're going to forsake Him. He knows they're going to abandon Him. He knows what Peter's going to do. He knows all of it. He knows that, that in just a little while, Peter's going to cuss like a sailor. That's where we get that phrase from. But instead of looking at, at them saying, you wicked servants, after everything I've done for you, I've, I've shown you three and a half years. You've, you've performed miracles in my name. You've sat at my feet. You've learned all this. You've done all this, and, and I've done all this for you. Instead of saying all that and, and, and pushing them away, He gives them mercy and He shows them grace. And He teaches them lovingly. That's the kind of God we serve. Yes, God corrects us. The Bible says very clearly, ye who without chastisement, ye are bastards and not sons. It means an illegitimate child. It means you just don't belong to Christ. You're not saved is what it means. If there's no chastisement, if there's no uh, correction, then there's no salvation. There's no relationship. But He does it in a way, again, just as a parent. When a parent disciplines a child, that when, it does it, when, when that parent does it in love, it is always to bring that child back and to teach that child something that will help them instead of hurt them. And that's what God was doing here. He was giving them a, solid, he was giving them a question that would teach them something later on. Friends, we see there the, the sure response of the profession of the disciples. We see the solemn question, the problem of the disciples. And in verse 32 and verse 33, we see the, solemn, the, excuse me, the sincere warning, the power of the disciples. Look first of all at verse number 32 when he talks about the departure. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Now this is beautiful here. He said, the hour cometh. That hour refers to Calvary. Right? When he says, the hour cometh, he is not talking about just a random time. This is an exact time in the mind and heart of God, predetermined in the counsel of God long before the foundation of the world there. This is the exact time that Calvary is supposed to happen. Remember, when Jesus was crucified and when He gave up that ghost and darkness came upon the face of the earth for a span of about six hours, excuse me, about three hours' time, Jesus hanging on the cross for six hours, when that darkness came on there and Jesus gave up that ghost, that was the exact time on the exact day of the Day of Atonement the Passover lamb was to be offered there. That Passover lamb was the, the pinnacle of all the sacrifices, that was when the high priest killed that lamb, went into the Holy of Holies with that blood one time a year, only one time to pass off. This was the exact time that he was to go in. He was the only time a year he was allowed into the presence of God with that blood of the lamb. He's going in there uh, to push off the sin of Israel for one more year. And Jesus says, not this year, not today. And He blacks out, that, uh, blacks out the sun. They couldn't see their hand in front of their face. They couldn't minister. Those priests couldn't go in and do their work. And here is Jesus, the Passover Lamb, the true Lamb of God, hanging on the cross of Calvary just when that knife was to cut the throat of that Passover Lamb there and that priest was to shed that blood. Here comes Jesus and He cries and gives up the ghost and He becomes that very Lamb there, friends. We read in Genesis 22 and verse number 8, He said, My Son, God will provide Himself a lamb. Amen. 
Just at that exact time, he said, the hour cometh. And I love it. He said, you'll scatter and you'll leave me alone. He said, but I'll not be alone. He said, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Now, in Genesis 22 and verse number 5, the Bible says, And Abraham said unto his young, young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Boy, I love that. Those servants, they, they, they came up to the foot of Mount Moriah, but they couldn't walk up that mountain. That was between Abraham and Isaac. That was personal. That was between a father and a son. And those servants didn't have any business seeing that. I love that. Because as we get to the foot of Calvary, we get to Gethsemane, those servants could only go so far. And Jesus said, wait here. This is between me and my father. Calvary was a... Oh boy, it stirs me up. Calvary was a supernatural event that took place between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit right there. Man didn't have any part in Calvary. Man had, man had no claim to Calvary. Man had no right to step foot on Calvary. Man's sinful within themselves. We couldn't redeem if we wanted to. And Jesus said, you wait here, I'll take care of it. That's the kind of God we serve. Every other religion says you earn your way to salvation. You earn your way to righteousness. God said you can't do it, so I'll do it for you. What an amazing grace today. That's God's love when we see it. Calvary is a display of God's love for the world today. That He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth should not perish but have everlasting life there. That's John 3.16 there, friends. And it took place between God the Father and God the Son there. And no one else was allowed. Why? Because no one else was worthy. What an awesome God we serve. He said, you'll leave me. But I'm not going to be alone. He said, the Father will be with me. Well, I love that. All the way up. As they, as they scourged the Lord Jesus Christ, they whipped Him with that cat of nine tail. God the Father was right there with Him. As they laid Him down and watched Him walk up Golgotha's hill with that cross on His back, God was right there with Him. When He fell to the ground and they uh, laid Him down there and they nailed those uh, nails through His hands and His feet, God was right there with Him. When He hung on that cross... God was right there with him. And it wasn't till the sin debt of man was placed on Jesus. Right there on that cross when sin was placed on Jesus that God had to turn His back on His Father. His Father had to turn His back on His Son. See, I believe. That Bible teaches Isaiah 53 and verse number 10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It pleased God to allow Jesus to go through Calvary. But it broke God's heart. To have to turn his back on his son. For the first and only time in all of eternity, that fellowship between God the Father and God the Son was going to be broken. For the first time, the only time, Jesus was going to know what the weight of sin felt like. Not just his sin, because he had none, he's perfect. But the sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl, every sin ever committed, past, present, and future, every one of them was held on Christ. On Calvary. And that's when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God had to turn his back on him at that point so that he didn't have to turn his back on you and I. And boy, Jesus knew that was coming. You study this scripture, you won't find anywhere where Christ ever cried for physical pain. Not one time. Not one time will you see him shed a tear for physical pain. You, you see these pictures of Jesus and He's uh, some skinny and scruffy. He wasn't some sissy. 
He was, that was a man's man. He was carpenter. He worked with his hands. He was strong. He was tough. He didn't back down from anybody. Never one time did he cower down uh, from somebody that came against him. He stood true and bold every time. He didn't run when he, he could have run. They, they couldn't have arrested him when they came out to him. And Jesus said, Whom seek ye at the garden? 600 men coming to him, all of them armed. And they said, Whom seek ye? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. In the Greek, it's, all it is is two words, I am. And it literally knocked every one of those 600 down to the ground. Jesus, they, they couldn't have overpowered him if they wanted to. The Bible says he waited for them to get up and asked him again, Whom seek ye? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you I'm him. And they took him away. Friends, he didn't die. He gave his life for you and I. He wasn't murdered. Let me rephrase that. He died. He wasn't murdered. He gave his life for you and I. John 10, 17 and 18. No man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. That's the God we serve. Oh, friends, not only do we see the, uh, the departure, but we see also the distribution in verse number 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What is it? What is it that should set the Christian apart from anybody else? It should be love and it should be peace. That love of God, as we talked about Sunday, that's what distinguishes us from others. That's what should be that defining factor and that defining mark, that symbol for Christians should be that love, not only for our neighbors, not only for our brother and sister in Christ, but also for the lost. But that, that peace there, that peace that is found only in Christ. Friends, we ought to display that today. There are so many people that are anxious today. There are so many people that are in turmoil today, torn to pieces over every little thing, every up and down, because they, they've, they've taken their eyes off of Christ. That peace, it doesn't mean that they'll be apart from tribulation. He said, in this world you'll have tribulation. He said, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. It means there's victory in Christ. It means our peace comes in spite of those tribulations. You think about the ocean. When a storm is beating down on the ocean water, underneath, that water is calm. Because it's too far away from the storm. It's not focused on the storm. That storm can't hit it. It's centered down where there's, where there's stillness. You and I today, yes, there's going to be tribulation that will come. And maybe some sitting here today saying, Preacher, I'm dealing with physical sickness right now. Preacher, I've got financial burdens right now. Preacher, I've got family problems right now. Uh, there is a storm raging around my home right now. But friends, in the center of that storm is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eye of that storm. And in the eye of that storm, there is calm and there is peace today. Friends, thank God for God's grace. First Peter, when we read First Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter goes on to talk about those tribulations. He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. He said, Think it not strange. Don't count it to be something abnormal. It's, it's promised. Christ promised it to us. He's already warned us of it. But in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, 
says, Be careful for nothing. The word careful means anxious or worried. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So be careful for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. That means before the, the prayer is even answered, thank God that you're trusting He's going to take care of it. Before God even sends that answer, thank Him for the work that He's doing. Because you trust in faith that He's going to do it. He said, In the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds today. Friends, these disciples were about to go through a storm. They were about to lose their Messiah. They were about to watch Him die. Christ said, Listen. He said, Don't worry about that. He said, I've already overcome the world. He said, Just focus on what I'm telling you right now. And it will prepare you for what you have ahead. Friends, we look today, and there's no doubt about it, we look at a very uncertain world. There are nations today that are, are very wicked, very wicked nations at their core. That their whole faith and their whole system of belief is to destroy and to hurt as many people as they can. They have nuclear powers. They have all these things. Friends, no doubt about it. It's, it's a very uneasy time. War could break out at any moment. We see that way. This country, as sad as it is, this country has never been more divided than it is right now. It, it, it is so sad to see that America is fighting each other rather than fighting outside enemies. We, it, it is a place that if we did not have Christ, it would be, it, we'd have every right to have turmoil. We'd have every right to have unrest. But thank God we stay in this Bible. And we study this Bible, and we know that God's people are taken care of. Before the first part of that tribulation can ever start, we get raptured out of here. And we get to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Before that judgment comes down, that undiluted wrath of God comes down, you and I will be in the presence of our Savior. We will be a part of the bride of Christ. Aren't you glad about that tonight? There's peace tonight. There's safety. There's security in the arms of Jesus Christ. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He tells them there, he said, he goes on to tell them again, that good cheer, that, that peace, that, that good news there. I've overcome the world. Be of a good spirit. Be, be faithful. Be patient. Be, uh, be, be uh, to the place where you're not worried about. Just, he said, just serve me. Go out today. Friends, we look around and we can complain. If we want something to complain about, we've got a million things. We can find it. That's not a problem. But if we will put our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, He says He comes as a thief in the night. When He calls and that rapture takes place, God help us that He finds us being about our Father's business. That He finds us serving Him faithfully and trusting Him with the results above ourselves. He said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Thank God today that Jesus is victorious. And we can have that same victory in Him tonight. That same peace, that same power, that same hope. God's grace is sufficient. Let's all stand and our heads bowed and eyes closed.